The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we have been going through the book of Acts passage by passage, and this morning the next passage we come to is Acts 6, 1 through 7. You know, life is full of challenges. Even if you become a Christian, life is full of challenges. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people have this idea that becoming a Christian will somehow guarantee you a certain level of ease and comfort in your life. And yet, both scripture and personal experience testify to the fact that that's just not true. The Christian life often involves struggles and difficulties of many kinds. And it always will, the side of heaven. There will always be challenges that we have to face. And what's true of us as individuals is also true of the church. I can't think of a single season in the life of our church when we haven't faced a challenge of some kind. Uh, Now, since we are a very new church, a church plant, many of these challenges have revolved around us having a suitable place to meet on Sunday mornings. And the current season is no exception. Right? I mean, here we are on our very first Sunday of doing two services because the hotel has relegated us to a smaller room than what we had before. And then also, of course, we face the challenge of a massive labor shortage delaying the renovation of the church building that we purchased uh, eight months ago now. So we have challenges. And as we look at the main passage here in Acts 6, we see that the early church faced a significant challenge as well. Verse 1 sums it up nicely. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, to give you some background here, the Hebrews and Hellenists were two different cultural groups in the church. The Hebrews were the Jews who spoke, well, Hebrew, and were also living in the region of Palestine, which was the the place where the, the Jewish people traditionally lived, their homeland. By contrast, the Hellenists were Greek speaking Jews from all over the Roman Empire who had come back to their traditional homeland of of Jerusalem for various reasons. It's very possible that many of the Hellenists that we read about in this text had come back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and then had been converted through uh, the events of Acts chapter 2 and then had decided to remain in Jerusalem to be a part of the church there. And culturally, these Hellenists were very different than the Hebrews. Although they were still recognizably Jewish, they had also absorbed many aspects of the Greek culture around them. 
And because of that, the Hebrews sort of looked down on them and regarded, as, uh, regarded them as second-class citizens in many ways. Also, the Hellenists were almost certainly a minority in the church. And so it's really not that difficult to imagine how the Hellenists might be overlooked when it came to the daily distribution of food. And of course, back then there was no such thing as food stamps or other government programs. Uh, so the church itself distributed food each day to the members in need, and specifically to the widows, it says, who were especially vulnerable and unable to provide for themselves. Yet apparently, the Hellenists were being overlooked in this daily distribution. They were not told whether that was intentional or unintentional, but either way, it was a significant problem that could have very easily split the church. Something had to be done. And this passage shows us that in responding to this issue, the apostles wisely avoided two things that could have hindered the church's ministry. And they would have. Uh, division and distraction. So that's the main idea we see here. That the apostles wisely avoided both division and distraction. So let's look at these two items in that order. First, the way in which they avoided division. You know, one of Satan's favorite ways of sabotaging a church's ministry is just by sowing seeds of division and discord in the church. Now, that's not his only method, of course. Now, so far in Acts, we've seen Satan oppose the church's ministry first through persecution. But, well, that only emboldened the early Christians so that the church grew even more. So, Satan then led certain church members named Ananias and Sapphira into sin in an attempt to bring moral compromise into the church. But, well, God sure put a decisive end to that one himself. And uh, the result, of course, is that the church still continued to grow. So now Satan tries something else. Probably his most dangerous attack yet. He stirs up dissension in the church with the ultimate goal of dividing the early Christians. See, Satan knows that if he can get Christians fighting with one another, with one another that we're going to be pretty well worthless for the kingdom. Right? Because if we're spending all of our time arguing with one another, well, guess what we're not doing? We're not engaging in our mission of telling people about Jesus. In addition to that, Satan knows that conflict will hinder not only our verbal witness, but it'll also undermine the witness that we are to others through our unity. One of the ways in which we display the power of the gospel most persuasively to the watching world is by coming together as those who are very different from one another in many ways and loving each other and serving each other. 
and dwelling together as a unified community of believers. That is one of the most compelling demonstrations there is of the power of the gospel. It demonstrates that Jesus has given us a unity and an identity that runs deeper than any other identity that we have. I mean, all those things that make us different, such as culture and politics and race and income levels and life experiences and and everything else, it all fades into the background because... Jesus brings us together. There's no other explanation for it. Jesus brings us together. And Satan knows that if he can disrupt that, then he has won the day. And that's exactly what he's trying to do here in Acts 6 in stirring up dissension between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. So how did the apostles respond? We're told in verses 2 through 6. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the apostles recognized that something needs to be done to resolve this issue. And so therefore they instruct the congregation to nominate seven men who can make sure that the food distribution is conducted properly. So instead of nominating the men themselves in more of a top-down approach, they instead recognize the wisdom of allowing the congregation to nominate them and in that way to be a part of the decision-making process. In addition, the apostles are wise to lay down certain qualifications for the men who are selected. As we see in verse 3, they have to be men, uh, first, full of the spirit, or or, excuse me, full of, uh, of good repute. Men whose character has earned them a good reputation. Also, they need to be full of the spirit in the sense that they're consistently led by the Holy Spirit, and yielded to the Spirit's direction in every aspect of their lives. Being full of the Spirit also probably refers to them demonstrating a a certain amount of fruitfulness in their ministry. Perhaps a good way of saying it is, is that it has to be evident that God's hand is upon them. And then finally, these men have to be full of wisdom. Both wisdom for organizing things efficiently and wisdom for dealing with difficult situations and perhaps difficult people at times. So those are the qualifications the apostles lay down for these men. Verse 5 then tells us that what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. 
And they nominated seven men. And it's worth noting here that all seven of these men have Greek names, indicating that they were uh, very likely Hellenist. So, since the Hellenists were the ones being neglected in the food distribution, the solution that the early church comes up with is to nominate seven Hellenists to be in charge of that ministry. And then after that, the apostles make the appointments official and the problem is solved. The church, through the wise leadership of the apostles, successfully avoids dissension and division. And as we read about all this, hopefully we understand that our church isn't somehow immune from conflict. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, things seem to be going pretty well right now at our church. And we've actually never had any significant dissension here at Redeeming Grace. But hear me when I say that it's only a matter of time before something comes up. And the same goes for each of us as individuals as well. It's only a matter of time until someone says something that offends you. It's only a matter of time until someone does something that causes you frustration. And it's only a matter of time before you encounter someone in our church that just have a certain way about them that gets on your nerves to no end. Uh, is it ha if it hasn't happened yet, don't worry. It will happen. And perhaps it has, right? So, we understand that these things are going to come about. And when they do, well, just know that you will have a wonderful opportunity to put Scripture into practice. Because in addition to this example here in Acts 6 of the other Christians refusing to let anything divide them, we have other Scriptures that give us very specific instructions for how to respond and others treat us poorly. For example, Proverbs 10.12 states that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Isn't that good? Love covers all offenses. Also, Paul gives these instructions in Colossians 3.12-14. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if, any, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So notice, what's our motive for forgiveness? What, what is it that gives us the strength to forgive others when they wrong us? It's the forgiveness that God has shown to us. Because in reality, guys, we've all sinned against God in a way that's way more egregious 
anything that others have done against us. And so if God has graciously forgiven us of our sins against him, well, surely we can forgive others of their sins against us. And that's what we're called to do over and over and over again in the church. Also, in looking at Acts 6, we see that the apostles not only avoid the danger of division, they also avoid the danger of distraction. You know, it would have been very easy for the apostles to respond to the complaints of the Hellenists by saying, all right, guys, don't, don't worry about anything. We as apostles are going to step in here and make sure that this thing is done right. We, we are going to personally see to it that this food is distributed properly. And that's probably how most people in their position would have been tempted to respond. But instead, the apostles recognize that division isn't the only danger here. They also need to avoid the danger of distraction. You see, God gave the apostles and has given church leaders today a unique calling. And that calling is one that we dare not neglect. We find this calling stated very clearly in verse 4, where the apostles tell the rest of the church that we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there it is, right? That's a pastor's job description. Prayer and the ministry of the word. You know, there seems to be this idea in many American churches that a pastor should function primarily as a CEO of sorts, right? That, that it's his job to increase the size of a church through entrepreneurial leadership and creative ideas and strategic planning and, and all of these other elements of organizational genius. And of course, a decent amount of personal charisma certainly doesn't hurt either. But as we look at Acts 6, we see that that's not what a pastor's calling consists of. It's not even close. Instead, God's design and calling for pastors is to focus on two things. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Of course, it's not that pastors aren't allowed to do anything else at all. It's simply that a pastor's main focus needs to be on those two priorities. You know, the word uh, translated devoted or devote here in verse 4 is a very interesting word. It carries the meaning of attaching yourself to something. So the apostles are literally saying, we will attach ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, keep in mind that it's not that other things and other ministries in the church aren't important, but rather that these things, these two priorities are foundational, right? And the leaders of the church need to focus their attention on what's most foundational for the church. Because just like a, a physical building, if the foundation's not right, 
Nothing else is going to be right. The whole structure will be unsound if the foundation isn't laid properly. So it's a pastor's job to make sure that the church has a solid foundation through prayer and the ministry of the word in order to facilitate all of those other things that the church does. So let's explore these two responsibilities a little bit. And I would actually like to do that in reverse order because I'd like to start with the one I believe we're a little bit stronger in. Think first about the phrase, the ministry of the word. And the word being the word of God in the Bible. Notice though, the word ministry, diakonia in the Greek. It's the noun form of a Greek verb, diakoneo, that was actually used earlier in verse 2 to speak of the food distribution ministry. The apostles had said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, diakoneo, tables. And here in verse 4, they're saying, we will devote ourselves to the ministry or service or diakonia of the word. So in essence, the apostles are saying, let's have these other men serve tables while we'll serve the word. And I love that connection because it really brings out the responsibility that preachers have to serve the word in the sense of regarding the word of God in scripture as our master and authority. You know, so often, let's be honest, preachers can get this backwards. Instead of starting with the word and asking the question, what does the word say? They start with their own agenda <laughs> that they then impose onto the word. And as a result, their preaching revolves around you know, certain creative ideas that they have and cultural commentary that they desire to offer. And of course, people's felt needs for things like joy and peace and purpose in their lives. So instead of starting with the word and letting the word drive their preaching, they start with their own ideas about what they want to talk about and then let those ideas drive their preaching. Of course, I'll always sprinkle in a few Bible verses to make it all sound more spiritual. But ultimately, it's not the word that's driving their sermon. I once heard a preacher say that there's a big difference between the word being the substance of a sermon and the word merely being the seasoning for the sermon. Serving the word involves placing ourselves under the word and, and regarding it as our authority for what we say. And, and that is what we at least strive to do here at Redeeming Grace. You know, every Monday morning, I sit down with my laptop and I read the, the text of scripture that I'm going to be preaching on. And I ask myself, okay, now how can I best explain this text? And then, how can I help people connect it to their lives? And guys, biblical preaching, it really is that simple. Like, it's not rocket science here. <laughs> how can I best explain this text? And how can I help people connect it? 
to their lives. And it's very important that church leaders, especially the preaching pastor, limit their other commitments so that they have the time to do this well. Because even a one degree divergence will have disastrous effects on the church. Think about a plane flying somewhere. If an airplane is trying to fly to a certain destination and is off course by just one degree, that might seem, or that might not seem like a very big deal at first. I mean, if the plane is supposed to be going this way and it's instead going like this way, it doesn't seem like a very big deviation. But as the distance an airplane travels increases, that one degree divergence actually ends up having a pretty significant impact on, on where the plane ends up. After 100 yards, the plane would be off its target by about 5.2 feet. Not a huge difference, but you can notice it, I suppose. Then after a mile, it would be off its target by 92.2 feet. So the divergence is starting to have more of an impact. Then, after traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles, it would be off by six miles. Then, traveling from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., it would be off by 42.6 miles. So at this point, we're not even in Washington, D.C. We're like on the other side of Baltimore. And then if you wanted to make this really fun, you could turn that plane into a rocket ship and start thinking about it going to the moon. If that rocket ship were just one degree off, it would miss the moon by 4,169 miles. Going to the sun, it would be off by 1.6 million miles. And then traveling to the nearest star other than the sun, it would be off by 441 billion miles. So you get the idea, right? The longer that plane or rocket ship continues its divergent course, even if it's just a divergence of one degree, the farther away it's going to end up from its intended destination. A one degree divergence can make a huge difference. And that's why those who preach need to be so careful and need to exercise the utmost diligence in handling the Word of God in Scripture. A pastor needs to be just as careful in his preaching as a brain surgeon needs to be in performing operations on people. And actually even more careful because, guys, we're talking about eternity here. I mean, we're not just talking about someone's earthly welfare. We're talking about their eternal welfare. You see, the main message of the Word is one that has eternal implications. When the apostles speak of the Word here, they're talking about the entirety of biblical revelation as they possessed it at that point. And that revelation doesn't just give us tidbits of moral wisdom or a collection of inspirational quotes. <laughs> Rather, it's a message 
that's first and foremost oriented around our eternal welfare. The Word tells us that we have a big problem. That our sins have separated us and alienated us from a holy God and made us deserving of eternal punishment. And yet God hasn't left us in that, that wretched condition, but has instead sent us a Savior in the person of Jesus. Uh, the, the word then describes how Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to this sin-cursed earth on a mission to save us. And the central feature of his saving work is his death on the cross. In the word, we learn that even though Jesus' death was certainly tragic, it was by no means accidental. See, God the Father had orchestrated the whole thing. He, he planned it because it was the only way to save us from our sins. See, when Jesus died on that cross, he was suffering, not just for, not for any sins he had committed, he was sinless. No, he was suffering for our sins. All of the, the judgment that should have come down on you and me came down on Jesus instead. Like, like he endured the full force of God's judgment so that we wouldn't have to. And then after three days, Jesus resurrected from the dead and now offers us forgiveness and rescue from our sins. And he's the only hope we have of forgiveness and rescue. I hope you realize that no amount of moral effort on our part, no amount of attending church or taking the sacraments or doing whatever, none of that can ever make us right with God again. But Jesus can if we'll simply put our trust in him to do that. That's the central message that the apostles were devoting themselves to and what's at the very foundation of what we believe as Christians and even as, of who we are. Everything we do in the ministry of the word grows out of and comes back to this glorious message of the gospel. Then secondly, not only do pastors need to focus their attention on the ministry of the word, we see in this text they also need to focus on prayer. One pastor from the 1800s named Andrew Bonar once said that as the king of Syria, and this is a reference to 1 Kings 22, by the way, as the king of Syria commanded his captains to fight neither with small nor great, but only with the king of Israel, so Satan seems to bend all the force of his attack against the spirit of prayer. If he should prove victorious here, he has won the day. And it's very true. Which is why pastors need to be so deliberate in their devotion to prayer. Also, one thing that may surprise you about the word prayer in this verse is that it has a definite article in front of it in the original Greek text. 
So a more literal translation would be, we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's significant because it means there's a very good chance this refers not just to the apostles devoting themselves to private prayer on their own, but to leading corporate prayer meetings. Notice how the prayer balances with the ministry of the word. Just as the ministry of the word was a public thing, the prayer should be interpreted primarily as a public thing as well. So they're basically saying that we will devote ourselves to leading prayer meetings and to the ministry of the word. And I am grateful that even though our church certainly has plenty of room to grow in this area, that our elders are at least trying to be faithful in um, that in the form of our prayer meeting that we have each and every Wednesday at our church building. Our elders and a few others take turns leading that meeting as a way of hopefully leading our entire congregation toward greater faithfulness and fruitfulness in the ministry of prayer. Because at the end of the day, it's prayer that makes the ministry of the word fruitful. That's how these two priorities of prayer and the ministry of the word relate to each other. We can't expect the ministry of the word to bear any fruit apart from prayer. It's kind of like putting out grass seed. Um, as most of you probably know, grass seed won't start to germinate until it comes into contact with water. So water is what activates that grass seed and initiates germination. Now you could sow grass seed all day long, but until it comes into contact with water, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> It'll remain just as inactive as it was when it was still in the back. And likewise, with the word of God, we can sow the seed of the word all day long. But nothing is going to happen until the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and causes it to have an effect on our hearts. And the only way we can expect the Spirit to do that is through our prayers. I once heard a pastor compare it to the the two wings of an airplane. And I know I just used an airplane illustration, but I'm going to use another one, all right? As you know, an airplane needs two wings in order to fly. I'm scheduled to uh, ride on an airplane in a couple of weeks, and I can tell you right now that if I get on that plane and look out the windows and I see that there's only one wing on the airplane, I'm getting off, right? I don't care what. I have to do to get off of that plane. Guys, I will knock over women and children if I have to in order to get off of that plane if it came down to it because I know, I'm very aware that planes need two wings in order to fly. And I can't help but wonder whether that's a key part of the explanation for why so many churches in America 
are in the condition that they're in. Could it be that we are trying to fly a one-winged airplane? You know, I praise God for the resurgence of expository preaching that the church has seen in recent years. I mean, it seems as though more and more pastors are rediscovering the importance of doing what we talked about a few moments ago and letting the word drive their preaching. I also appreciate the resurgence of sound reformed theology that we're seeing in recent years as well. And yet so many of these churches that have great preaching and great theology are spiritually lifeless. Why is that? Could it be that we are trying to fly a plane that only has one wing? A plane that has the, the wing of the ministry of the word, but not the wing of prayer. Our greatest need is to have not just one wing, but two wings. So that together, those two wings can catch the wind of the Spirit of God and this plane can soar. We've got to have two wings in order for that to happen. Brothers and sisters, if there's one thing that I desire for our church, it's that God would be at work in our midst. I want to see God at work. I want to see people who are far from God encountering God in a life-changing way and embracing the gospel. I want to see Acts 6-7 happen at our church. It states that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want to see that. I want to see the word of God increase in our region. And just like a great number of the, the priests became obedient to the faith back then, I want to see a great number of people who might often be regarded as the least likely to embrace Jesus do so and be changed forever. But I'm convinced that we won't ever see verse 7 without verse 4. I don't think we'll ever see the word of God increase in this way unless we as a church, not just the leaders, but the whole church, give central place to prayer and the ministry of the word. This plane needs both wings in order to go anywhere.